Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Torah Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to say and you want to click forward the 30 seconds to stop hearing me saying it, but I'm asking you not to. We rely on you. The Torah Shack has no ads, no sponsors. Only with the support of our listeners can we keep the conversations going. So if you like what we do, if you get something out of it, please, I'm asking you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It is at the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. It isn't a one-way street. You get a ton of additional content as well as all of our podcasts entirely plea-free. But much more importantly, you will be helping keeping this progressive, left-leaning podcast platform going. So whether it's Reboot Republic, Shrapnel, Glow West, Policed, or indeed the brand new Palcast, One World, One Struggle with Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, they're all in one consolidated feed and you don't have to listen to me beg. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, this is Yusuf Al-Jamal from Istanbul. Um, this is the third episode of uh, PALcast, One Word, One Struggle, uh, brought to you by myself, uh, Helena Coben from Washington, D.C. Uh, Helena is the president of Just Word Educational, and we are also joined by Tony Groves. Um, Tony is a producer um, in Dublin with Eco Chamber. Uh, hello, Helena and, and Tony. Hi, Yusuf. It's always good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, this is a reminder to our listeners that we're recording this episode uh, on November 21st. It's uh, 4 p.m. In, in Istanbul. And today we're going to talk about Hamas. A lot of people are talking about Hamas these days. And... Um, we need to give some introductions and explanations to our listeners um, based on our understanding of uh, this movement that is um, a major non-state actor um, today in uh, Palestine and Gaza, especially with what is happening in, in Gaza today, uh, where Hamas basically leads um, the efforts on the Palestinian side of um, the battle that is enraging um, at the streets of Gaza. And uh, for uh, people who, who do not know, Hamas is an acronym that stands uh, in Arabic for the Islamic Resistance Movement. It was established in 1987, um, soon after um, an Israeli settler ran over four Palestinian laborers from Jabalia refugee camp, killing them. So Palestinians took to the streets, and um, a lot of Hamas members at the time participated in these nonviolent um, protests in Gaza, Israel responded with lethal force, um, killing dozens of Palestinians. And um, over, you know, days and weeks, the protests continued in Gaza, and um, it became what we know today as the first Palestinian Intifada uprising against Israeli forces in Gaza. These protests, again, were led by Hamas members. And um, over the years, Hamas has um, turned into using armed resistance against Israel. Uh, but this only happened uh, probably 
Five years later, uh, almost in 1991, 1992, um, following Israel's refusal um, to uh, allow Palestinians to have self-determination uh, in Gaza and elsewhere in, in Palestine. We'll talk about this uh, in more detail um, uh, very soon. Uh, but just to give you an idea about, uh, you know, this Palestinian group and um, how it has uh, shifted from non-violence to uh, violence over the years. And uh, Helena has visited Gaza and met with some of um, Hamas leaders. She will be sharing her experience with us too uh, and her understanding of, of the movement. Hamas has published its um, charter in 1988, uh, less than a year after it was um, established. And a lot of people refer to this charter today to describe Hamas. Um, at the same time, the group has published um, a principles document uh, in 2017, uh, which outlined its political vision, um, you know, especially that the movement has gone through multiple changes over the years. Uh, Hamas is not only a militant group, it has a religious uh, social, political, economic wings in Gaza and elsewhere where Palestinians live, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and in the diaspora in Lebanon and Syria. And um, it has also, uh, you know, presence elsewhere in, in, in the world where Palestinians live. Um, and there are three major changes uh, that took place in this political document where Hamas accepted two-state solution for the first time, and uh, proposed a ceasefire, long ceasefire, uh, uh, you know, like proposal uh, for like 10 years to, um, in, or in return for having a Palestinian state. Uh, and uh, it also accepted uh, non-armed resistance along with uh, armed resistance. Uh, so these are three major changes. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the document is rarely mentioned uh, in the media. Uh, all people are still referring uh, to the charter, and I'll, I'll stop here. Um, but it's also worth mentioning that the Likud charter um, outlines that the state of Israel is from the river to the sea, um, which is uh, very interesting. It never gets, uh, you know, a mention in, in the media today. Uh, Helena and Tony, welcome to the third episode. And... Uh, Helena, please tell us about your experience in Gaza and interviews and meeting different Hamas leaders in, in the coastal enclave. Well, thanks. It's um, really good to have your expertise because I know you've, this is basically your, your PhD thesis. So it's good to have, you know, we can dive into some of the details that you mentioned a bit later. I was traveling to, well, I've, I've traveled to Gaza since the 1980s and through that first intifada. And it's great that you mentioned that Hamas was born at the same time as the first intifada um, it, and, and has been active in community organizing, essentially, since that time. So when I went in 2006, right after the elections, that were held for the Palestinian Legislative Council, elections held in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and in Gaza. 
but sadly not for the for the millions of Palestinians who are not allowed to live in their homeland. But it, they were elections, and they were the ones that Hamas won in January two thousand six. Um, so I went to Gaza to do a lot of interviewing, and I interviewed at that time um, Ismail Haniyeh, who became the, the prime minister, and um, Dr. Mahmoud Zahar, who is a, an old school, old, really a, one of the founders of Hamas. Um, and I also had some really interesting times with the Hamas women's organization. And this is something I think people in the West don't understand enough. You know, they think that Hamas is somehow like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever, and, and that they treat women badly. No, the, you know, on that Hamas list of parliamentarians who got elected in 2006, there were four women. And one of them was Dr. Jamila Shanti, who I just loved her the moment I, I met her because, you know, I went into her office and she's kind, she was kind of this big, bustling woman, slightly overweight, maybe, you know, with a, a ratty old briefcase just overflowing with papers. And, you know, she was just a busy, busy woman. And, you know, she organized for me to go with some of the Hamas women around, you know, their community organizing that they did, because, of course, there are so many female-headed households, given how many people have been killed over the years, how many men have been killed over the years by Israel, or how many men in prison. So the women's organizations are very important. Um, so I, sadly, I have to share right now that Dr. Jamila Shanti was killed by the Israelis about two weeks ago. Um, I don't know if they were targeting her, but I did just want to mention her here. Um, later, Lina, I, I just I, say, I'm very sorry for your loss. You, you can actually see that that affects you greatly, that that was someone you admired greatly. I just want to say how how, uh, how sorry we all are to hear that because... Your eyes lit up when you said her name, and that's a great sadness that that these these people their lives are no longer able to light up the little life that that we've that we have. So thank you for 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 mentioning her. I really appreciate it. And actually, while we're on the question of loss, um, Yusuf had, has had a bad loss this week. I don't know if he wants to talk about it, but I mean, I know he's dealing with loss the whole time as we produce yeah, this podcast. I mean, my social media timeline has turned into a graveyard of people, uh, you know, being killed in Gaza and people that I know, like firsthand friends. Um, last week, I lost two um, close friends, Salah Salhi and uh, Hassan al-Najjar. Uh, Hassan was killed along with his family um, and neighbors. Dozens of people were killed when Israel bombed the um, area. Salah was um, also killed uh, when he went back to their house that was greatly damaged due to um, another Israeli airstrike to get some items. And Israel bombed another house on the other side of the street and he lost his life. And two days ago, I lost my uh, longtime friend and uh, co-translator of the prisoner's diaries, Ra'id Qaddura, Dr. Ra'id Qaddura. Ra'id got his BA and, and Helena actually met him in Gaza um, when she visited. He got his BA from Al-Azhar University, which was also damaged and um, leveled to the ground in, in uh, Gaza along with the Islamic University. 
uh, in English language and literature. He also got his MA from the University of Malaya. Both of us went to the same program around the same time. And um, he got his PhD from the uh, University uh, UKM, uh, which is the uh, National University of Malaysia. And after eight years of working hard in, in, in Malaysia and on his postgraduate studies, uh, he was also doing translations and writings from time to time. He's a contributor to Mundu Wise and the Electronic Intifada. Um, he went back to Gaza and he couldn't find a job. Um, so he applied for another job in Kuwait as a teacher, an English language teacher. Um, he spent uh, a year there and he went back to Gaza to visit over the summer. Uh, his wife gave birth to twins just two weeks ago. Uh, she had uh, a caesarean, um, you know, surgery without uh, using uh, anesthesia in, in Gaza because hospitals do not have it. And um, everyone in his family was killed. 29 members of his family were, were killed, including his children and his parents, uh, including his newly born um, twins. Um, so I would like to, to honor his life and legacy. I, I, there are no words that you can say and and there absolutely are nothing that we can add other than what a senseless waste of life and sense of loss of potential and I'm really sorry for you pal I really am I know as you said um, your timeline has become a graveyard and that is a terrifying prospect uh, but um, thank you for, for, for using you know again making sure at least you remember the individuals and the people and who they were and the, the the joy that they brought because too often we say you know these numbers all the time 13,300 now dead you know 7,000 you know um, children we, we, all of these figures that we have but every, behind every one of those there's there's someone's mother, father, sister, brother, and your and your friends, and that's really important to remember. So, so thank you for sharing that, um, and I'm very sorry for your loss, uh, for both of you for your loss, and thank you. Uh, I, 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 I have had um, plenty of contact with people who've lost friends and family in Gaza over the last few weeks. Thankfully, none of nobody I've been talking to directly has yet lost their life, but it doesn't stop you terror shaking when you're waiting on those messages to come through. And Yusuf, you know this because we, we have people in common where we're I'm asking you, have you heard from this person? And we're both waiting on WhatsApps to turn blue. So it's uh it's it's a scary time. So so thank you for for honoring your friends like that. And I really want to give a big shout out to Yusuf and his courage and determination going ahead with our project here, um, leading our project here, because I know it's hard to work, but sometimes doing this work is the best way to honor the memory of uh, your loved ones. So thank you, Yusuf, for, for being there and doing that. Um, maybe you could get back into um, the the question of, of Hamas's international relations a bit. So you mentioned a few places where Hamas is. Um, can you give us any examples, for example, when you're in Malaysia or there in Turkey? You know, do they have relations with the government? Do they have a presence on the media? You know, is it a worldwide thing or is it mainly in the Arab world? Um, so I just want to go back a little bit in, in time and mention that, um, you know, 70% of people in Gaza are refugees and the majority of the founders of Hamas in Gaza um, and elsewhere in the West Bank too are refugees. Um, 
so this is a an ongoing, you know, um, debate and question that we have. Um, for 40 years, we did not have Hamas, and Palestinians were also subjected to um, settler colonialism and occupation from 1948 up until Hamas was founded in 1987. Israel was still oppressing the Palestinian people anyway. Um, at the time, they had another tag um, name for for you know terrorism. It was the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. And Helena has met many of the PLO leaders, um, the most prominent ones, uh, Yasser Arafat, Khalil Wazir, and others. In, in Lebanon, while reporting uh, from there in the seventies and eighties, um, just just to, to 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 give a context to what we we are talking about. Um, so Israel in, in nineteen ninety six listed Hamas as a terrorist organization after Hamas started using um, violence. Uh, so for almost six or seven years. Hamas did not resort to to the use of, of violence, except in very limited cases. Uh, the uh, use of violence as an approach became very prominent in, in 1994, 5, and 6, and that's when Israel decided to list Hamas as a terrorist organization. Uh, the United States followed suit in 1997, so a year later, um, listed Hamas as a terrorist organization. The EU listed the military wing of Hamas as a terrorist organization in 2001, and they also sanctioned some Hamas leaders in 2003. Um, on the other hand, we have countries that consider Hamas as a liberation movement. In fact, Hamas refers to itself as a liberation movement and a nationalist movement, uh, including in its charter of 1988. Uh, Hamas mentions the word uh, national or liberation 18 times in its uh, charter, a reference to itself. Um, uh, China, for example, uh, Mahmoud Zahar visited China in 2000 and um, I think six, to the best of my knowledge, when he became the uh, foreign minister of, of uh, the PA when Hamas won the elections uh, that year. Um, so China doesn't recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization, but at the same time, it keeps distance. Unlike Russia, for example, which from time to time invites Hamas to Moscow, including after Hamas's attack on Israel uh, on October 7. A delegation from Hamas visited Moscow. Um, at the same time, there are countries, regional powers such as um, Turkey, Iran, Algeria, Malaysia, and Indonesia that uh, deal with Hamas as a political party and uh, as a national liberation movement rather than uh, as a terrorist organization. And uh, so there are different countries, uh, including within the EU. The EU is not unified on its uh, approach towards Hamas. Um, I find Germany and the United Kingdom as uh, the... Uh, most vocal uh, two European powers, uh, in addition to France, that consider Hamas as a terrorist organization. In the past, some Hamas officials visited Switzerland uh, as part of talks with the EU. 
but generally the EU still views Hamas negatively. There were attempts to remove Hamas uh, from the terror list of the EU uh, in 2014 that failed. Um, but other than you know the EU, we have um, other you know major powers uh, in in the region such as Turkey I mentioned and Indonesia and Malaysia in some of these countries in fact Hamas has um, offices and they are operating there. So you actually made a really interest a couple of really interesting points, Yusuf. One was to mention Likud, which you know from my growing up in England. Everybody remembered Menachem Begin in the 1950s and 1960s as a terrible terrorist. I mean, he had been. Um, and, and then suddenly he's like, oh, the prime minister of Israel, you know, and, and they swept it all away. So, you know, there's that at the political level. And of course, at the ideological level, as you noted, they have never disavowed their charter that says that the land of Israel stretches from the river to the sea. Um, and then, yes. and then you also mentioned um, the PLO. So you know, I was actually very involved back in the um, late 1980s after my book on the PLO came out, and I got attacked and attacked here in the United States because I had recently moved here. You know that you're a terrorist sympathizer and this and that. And then you know, blow me down on on September the thirteenth, I think it was nineteen ninety three. There is Yasser Arafat at the White House, and you know you couldn't you couldn't get close. Not that I necessarily wanted to, because I always had some criticisms of the guy. But um, for you know all these congressmen and and rich rich political donors who just a week before had been you know spouting all the stuff about the PLO as a terrorist organization. They were all lining up to shake his hand, you know, because he got the kind of seal of approval from Yitzhak Grabin. And so suddenly he became, you know, the, the flavor du jour here in, in um, Washington, D.C. And just throughout English, um, decolonial, decolonizing history, obviously, Tony, same with Sinn Féin, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not that people line up necessarily to, to shake their hands but they're part of the political system now and Helena just you think the the queen god rest her soul visited Ireland and, and you know was joined by the leaders of Sinn Féin for dinner you know the, <laughs> so that that was impossible 25 years ago absolutely impossible but yeah you know so so there is you know there is those those parallels um and I think it's really important that you 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 show the longevity it is from yeah I mean I told you I'm out of my depth on this podcast you, you you're both absolute experts on this so so Helena please continue no 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 that 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 was all I want to say I do want to just also go into what happened on October 7th because you know I have friends here in Washington DC who just say like Hamas is pure evil or Hamas is a bunch of murderous thugs how can you even how can you even you know think about them in a political way and you know actually if you look at what happened on October 7th I am sure there were some um what would be called atrocities or war crimes may be carried out by Hamas people or maybe not, because I think the Hamas people who were there were by and large fairly disciplined and they clearly had, you know, military objectives. They went to the military command center. They went to the security centers in, in, in each place. But of course, the fact that they had breached the, the concentration camp walls 
so thoroughly meant that all kinds of people were going out from people from other organizations and people from no organization whatsoever who were just eager to break out of the concentration camp. And, you know, sadly, actually, the Hamas people were not able to discipline, you know, not able to discipline everybody. That's one thing that was happening. So it's, you know, you can't just say everything that was done by Gaza Palestinians was Hamas. That's one thing. And the other is, as the Israeli media themselves are now revealing, a lot of the killing of um, Israeli citizens as well as of Palestinians who had participated in the outbreak was done by the Israeli military because their response was so chaotic and belated and they just came up with helicopters with hellfire missiles and shot at anything that was moving, you know. And and it's just tragic if you think about that. Um, I have to say... can I make a point on that? It's really important. Uh, where no one is, no one is saying that that we're. There's no apologism here for for the loss of human life. But what we're simply pointing out is it all bears to be investigated correctly. It has to. If atrocities took place, they need to be investigated correctly. And and you know we've seen countries now say five countries have said you know Israel should be referred to the International Criminal Court, a court they don't obviously rec- recognize. But 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 uh, but Palestine but Palestine um, and and Hamas do. And they are there. They could be um, also looked at for for these crimes, and and you know, so these kind of things, it justice can't be just one way, weighted one way. And we know again that we've seen like the numbers and on the from the day we've gone, we've seen it. This is not to to make light of what happened, absolutely not. But we've seen the reporting go from fifteen hundred people to killed to fourteen hundred people killed. Now we know it's just around twelve hundred people were killed. So well, it's, that's it's, only it's, because they only count the Israeli people. I think I, there I, were I, I, about two hundred. Yes. Yeah. I, but this is my point, Helena, where, whereby, you know, this was used in, initially and it's still been reported now that this is the some lives matter more than others in, 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 in how a lot of this has been framed from October 7th. And there was and all kind of other scare reporting, like, you know, beh- 40 beheaded babies yeah. and such, which was just told by Netanyahu to our president, who, who said it as though it were like the gospel truth and that he'd seen the evidence that there were 40 beheaded babies. I mean, this stuff, you know, it, you're absolutely right, Tony. It needs to be thoroughly investigated. And I'm glad that the Israeli media is doing some of this investigation right now and bringing forth some of this evidence. Haaretz have done a better job than most Western medias uh, of on their own their own government to account. Can I ask a very simple question uh, to you, Yusuf? On that, um, we've talked a lot about what Hamas is in terms of the you know the the its, its history, how it came to be, where it where it be, where it changed its charter. But if I said to you really simply, like if you were going to explain to someone, what how do you see Hamas now today? Like um, your your overall view of them as 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 things can, as currently constituted within within Gaza, how do you think uh, Hamas are now? You know, there are people who have political differences um, with Hamas. There are different political parties in the Palestinian street, but as Helena pointed out, definitely Hamas has a um, considerable base in Gaza and elsewhere where Palestinians uh, 
live and that's why Hamas won the, the election and maybe they will not win the election again in Gaza but this doesn't mean that they will lose it in the West Bank uh, too uh, so you know there are people who Palestinians do not the majority of Palestinians do not think that Hamas is a terrorist organization and they see it as a political party um, they have seen, you know, the politics of labeling um, Palestinian groups over time. As we mentioned, the PLO was also labeled as a terrorist organization, and then they were celebrated in in the White House when Arafat went there to to sign the Oslo um, Accords. Um, and I think it's important also to look at how the politics of labeling has changed following the end of the Cold War. If we look at the um, labeling of the FLN and the National uh, Liberation Front of Algeria. And in fact, the FLN was more willing to accept the terrorism label. It was not as negative as it is today, uh, following the end of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, some of the FLN leaders, such as Yusuf Saidi, uh, described their actions as terrorism, but necessary terrorism, saying that... Um, Urban warfare and terrorism are the only tools for uh, a crushed people. Um, but today, you know, the uh, label of terrorism is very negative and uh, everyone, including Hamas, are trying to avoid being labeled as such. Uh, so I, I think it's really important and interesting how the concept of terrorism has has changed um, over over time. How the war on terror um, started twenty years ago, and they decided to all enemies were therefore. Um, you, what was the phrase, Helena? If you're you're not with us, you're against us. Oh yes. Um, yeah, but it, but it, but it had repercussions yeah, you know, for 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 so many people. Like it, there's hundreds of thousands of people dead because they uttered that phrase. Oh, millions actually. You know, in, yep. in Afghanistan and Iraq. I have a question for Yusuf. Yusuf, what are the prospects for Palestinian reunification? I know this is a big topic and we're not going to get it nailed in, in, I mean, we have about like five minutes left here, but, um, you know, there, there are a lot of political divisions among Palestinians. Um, should Hamas try to join the PLO? Should it try to create a new umbrella organization? Um, should the PLO have its next um, national council meeting in Ramallah or should it have it somewhere else? Do you have thoughts on this? Definitely, you know, Palestinians need to be united and um, all political parties in Palestine have to somehow have a body that represents everyone. Uh, so unity is important. I see unity on the streets in Palestine. So what the people outside see as a political division is more on an elitist level. Um, if you talk to people on the ground, they're very much united. Even in Gaza today, um, you know, they're united against what Israel is doing in Gaza. Every single Palestinian uh, is united uh, against these atrocities and genocide taking place in Gaza. But when it comes to political leaders, there are different views. There are people who believe in two-state solution, people who do not believe in, which is, I think, natural in every society. Palestinians in the diaspora also have a different point of view. Uh, Palestinians need to, to, to come together. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, how would Palestinians even have 
you know, election in Gaza and the West Bank, which only represent a small portion of Palestinians in the world when Israel is there. So how would they hold elections, for example, in, in Gaza and the West Bank, including in Jerusalem? Israel has always refused to do that. Um, maybe there should be other, you know, means of, of doing elections, um, online means probably, uh, I don't know. But again, we have to um, emphasize that any election that doesn't include Palestinians in the diaspora will be um, somehow an acceptance of the reality Israel created where they reduced Palestinians to Gaza and the West Bank and not even the entirety of the West Bank, where Jerusalem, for example, is not included. So uh, we should look at the larger picture. Uh, every single Palestinian should participate in this body and, you know, the... Uh, PLO, either it's reformed or another body is established. Um, I, I know that Fatah is very sensitive to uh, dismantling the PLO because it has a long history and a, a lot of people have respect for, for the PLO, but then there are a lot of people who are not happy with the current status of the PLO. So they are calling for reform, major reform, structural reform. Um, there are people who also political parties and leaders, mostly elites who do not want to reform the PLO because they will lose their status. So it's, uh, there are also uh, internal Palestinian politics involved here and international politics, regional politics and Israeli politics. So it's very complicated. Uh, but the good news, as I said, is that Palestinians on the ground as people, as a nation are united. Uh, and uh, they will not settle for less than equal rights and full equal rights. Yeah, I mean, I noticed, for example, that Mohammed Dahlan, who had been the, the kind of the spearhead of the anti-Hamas coup that took place in 2007, and he's now sitting in the United Arab Emirates, and he, you know, has repeatedly said he's not going to be part of any any movement to replace Hamas in Gaza, and he wants national unity that includes Hamas. So, you know, if if that comes from Mohammed Dahlan, then you know, the West, the 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 imperialists, the the Zionist settler colonialists, really have no possibility of finding a a Palestinian puppet, and of course. For his part, also Muhammad Abbas, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, um, Abu Mazen has refused to, you know, be parachuted into into Gaza on on an Israeli. He said he won't parachute. go in. Yeah, said he won't return to Gaza on tank on the back of Israeli tanks. <laughs> right. I believe was the phrase they used, and it was a, it was a very good phrase to give him credit. It's a good, it's a very good credit. And um, can I ask one last question? Um, just on the you you mentioned the 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 feminist wing of Hamas. I'm fascinated by this because I know part of our peace process, it was much easier for the women in, in, in the divided communities to find common ground because they were they, when they when they communicated with one another, it wasn't as frowned upon as it was, say, you know, men in the, to do so. Is there any parallel there, um, Helena or, or Yusuf, that, 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 that the feminist uh, uh, activism in this is it could be key to actually ha having some of those harder those conversations that we we we're not going to solve on this podcast, but maybe you know they can have at longer term conversations with with through the feminist lens. What do you think, Yusuf? I think you know Palestinian women have always been there present, although their representation is not um, as reflective uh, politically. 
uh, we have we do have a representation for Palestinian women, but it's not as uh, reflective as it should be. Um, at the same time, if we look at the history of the Palestinian nationalist um, movement or national uh, movement, women have always been there. Uh, women have been prisoners. They were killed by Israel. Now there are 3,600 Palestinian women who were killed by Israel since October 7 in Gaza. Um, women were political leaders, but most importantly, they were always on the ground confronting Israeli soldiers. I remember uh, my grandmother uh, was always there looking for her kids. Uh, some of them were, would you know, throw stones at Israeli soldiers and she tries to, to bring them home. Uh, if she's walking somewhere and she sees Israeli soldiers trying to kidnap Palestinian children and take them as hostages and prisoners, she would claim that these children are her own and she would take them from Israeli soldiers. And this is very common in Palestinian society. So even today, if we look at um, the role of women during Israel's genocide in Gaza, and I think uh, if it wasn't for, for my mom, um, the house would like literally <laughs> collapse. She's taking care of everything. She's, uh, you know, like super mom doing multiple things. We've seen the picture of this Palestinian woman uh, carrying a lot of bags and sacks on her shoulders, but at the same time carrying two, two children, uh, putting them in a stroller and trying to move south. And I think this is the representation that we have of, of Palestinian women. Uh, Palestinian women are educators, uh, they're fighters, they're on the ground, they're housewives, they, they're doctors and nurses, and, and they're very present. And I think um, they should play a more political role in, in the future. We've seen in different conflicts in, in the world, in peace building, women, I think women have a more mature <laughs> understanding of um, peace building uh, because they do have children and they have responsibilities that men cannot understand. And I hope that Palestinian women will play a greater role politically, but also in peace building in, in, in the future that reflects their real role on the ground today. You know, I think um, we probably better wrap it up here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, we were going to do some headlines at the beginning, and I wonder if we can do the headlines at the exit. Um, so, yes, Yusuf, your, your few quick headlines. Yes, so today we have three headlines, and I think Helena will also contribute some headlines. Qatar has called for a formation of international committee to probe um, Israeli crimes in Gaza. The Jordanian king uh, has spoken to EU officials discussing Israeli onslaught on Gaza. And uh, last but not least, BRICS countries uh, are planning to hold an extraordinary meeting on Gaza, which I think is a very important development. Yeah, actually, that BRICS meeting is what I wanted to mention because I've been following the rise of BRICS throughout, you know, many months now. and. Um, so China is currently hosting the Arab and Islamic follow-up committee um, that's concerned with the Gaza crisis with getting, I mean, their, their number one issue is to get a ceasefire. And um, so they're going to have this virtual BRICS meeting involving, obviously, the, the presidents of Brazil and South Africa and um, 
other countries today. In uh, and and also, China is currently the chair of the UN Security Council, which gives it some leeway for um, determining the agenda and the way things move forward in the, in the Security Council. So. This is all, you know, at the international level, moving um, in an interesting way, but not nearly fast enough for the people of Gaza. I, I think we'd probably better wrap it up here. But um, Tony, it's been just great to have you on, giving your perspective. Um, no, listen. Can I just say thank you, both of you? And um, we will. I think this is a topic in terms of Hamas. We'll return to again and, and discuss other aspects of it. But I think it's great to get that um, that that based what we've put down a foundation of, of, of how it is and and rather much much less to do with how do I put this stereotypes and western narratives so you know they've all been put to bed in this conversation so thank you Yusuf and thank you Elna and make sure folks if you're listening to tell people about the podcast tell people where to find the podcast recommend the podcast leave reviews for the podcast send your friend a whatsapp and say this is where I'm listening to and get my information from at the moment uh, and make sure that if you if you are then the other thing is don't stop talking to about Gaza because these things fall off the news cycle so the onus is on us to keep talking about it and and, and it's a pleasure to work with you both so thank you so much again for that Oh thank you Tony I gather we have some interesting guests coming up so people should you know be sure to follow the Palcast on their podcast feed so that they know the moment that we have another episode Um, big thanks to, to, to Yusuf for sharing you know so much of your expertise on this I'm Helena Corbin um president of Just World Educational. We call for a complete ceasefire in Gaza and for the speedy march of Palestinians to liberation. Um, so thank you, Tony. Thank you, Yusuf.